Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Holmes. I have the Pleasure to be uh, bringing the word this morning, and uh, my full-time job here is to be the pastor of community, and it's a joy and an honor to open up God's word with each of you this morning. Uh, Would you mind uh, opening up your Bible to Matthew, and we will be in chapter 10. We're in our summer series uh, again, and we're going to be in the final two weeks where we're going to wrap up Matthew 10. And we'll get there in just a moment. My youth pastor... Uh, was concluding a message one evening uh, when I was about in middle school. And uh, the question that he asked that night was, uh, it just pricked my heart more than expected, even more than probably he expected. But uh, you know the drill. He had everybody close their eyes, bow their heads, and he re-summarized his message and then he asked for hands in the air. But the question he asked that night was this. He asked, if a gun was pointed to your head, would you deny Christ? And I was like, what did he just say? But I'd, I had never, you know, pointed that question directly at my faith. See, I had heard the martyrdom stories and the ones that happened back in the Bible, right? With Peter and Paul, or the great missionaries like Jim Elliot, or even the accounts of the Columbine shooting, which would be pretty close to this timeline, maybe sparked his question that evening. But I never pointed that question and said, if it came down to it, would I confess Christ in the face of death, in the face of great suffering, even if it cost me my life, would I faithfully confess Jesus? See, martyrdom has always been a part of the Christian story. From the very beginning, the stage for martyrdom was the ancient arena. It was the location that people gathered. And much like our arenas today, it was the place of entertainment. But entertainment back then was a little bit more uh, gruesome, violent, if you will, right? Gladiators fought to the death. Slaves fought for their freedom. And Christians would come before the thousands of people who've gathered, and they would ask, recant your faith. If they didn't, they would be killed. See, when forced to choose, the Christians of the early church chose to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. And many paid the extreme cost of their very lives. See, sadly, martyrdom is not just a story of the past that inspires us, it's the story of today. Every year, there are more than 80,000 Christian martyrs. That's a low estimate. This is something that we don't just think about as distant. This is something that needs to be on our minds. There's Christian martyrs today. Most of us will not have to die for our faith, but it might come to that. But we will all face moments when we will face things that demand our allegiance over Jesus. Maybe comfort maybe a job or career or success. See, the martyr's fate might not be ours, but their faith and conviction to confess Jesus must be. 
Matthew 10, verse 26. Jesus says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word for us. May the Spirit work mightily in each of our hearts and minds this morning. Jesus knew the disciples would encounter great, great challenges to remaining faithful in their confession of Jesus Christ. Yes, my disciples will be like sheep sent out amongst wolves. They will face rejection, backstabbing, persecution, and suffering. But Jesus says, so have no fear of them. Now let me let you in on a little secret. When someone says there is no need to panic, there is a really good reason to panic, right? No one says that when there's actually no need to panic. So when Jesus is saying, have no fear, there is a reason to fear, right? There's just a greater reason to have confidence in him. What do you mean, have no fear, Jesus? You just gave me all these different reasons why I should be afraid in what, you're being, what I'm being sent to do. But Jesus is worthy of our trust. So we have to ask this. If a disciple is to have no fear, what should we do when we face fearful circumstances? If a disciple is to have no fear, what should we do when we face fearful circumstances? And this is exactly what our passage answers this morning. And I trust that we'll see this. Christians confess Jesus in the face of darkness, death, and doubt. Christians confess Jesus in the face of darkness, death, and doubt. And our outline will break down into three reasons on our confession, and that'll lead us to one response. Reason number one, God's light overcomes darkness. So in the earlier context of chapter 10, Jesus has, received, has, re, has revealed himself as the Messiah by performing miracles, by forgiving sins, and by teaching with authority. So Jesus is inviting his disciples now to join him on this mission. At the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out as apostles, and they are to say what he said and to do what he has done. He instructs them in verse 7 to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 4, 17. He said the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he is saying, what you've heard me say, I'm now sending you to say. Jesus has revealed himself as the Messiah by performing these miracles. And he tells his apostles as he's sending them, 
you too shall do as I did, right? Jesus is saying, what you have heard me say, you also should say. And what you've seen me do, you also should do. But as you say these things, and as you do these things as I have done, you will face people. And people will divide. They'll divide between those who accept you and what you're saying and doing, and they'll divide over those who don't. They will reject you, and they'll reject you in hostility. Jesus tells them that they will indeed be sheep in the midst of wolves. These wolves will attack with persecution, with personal attacks, with challenges. For if Jesus was not respected, surely his disciples would have the same fate. And so Jesus says, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The word them refers to those who persecute Christians. So don't fear the persecutors. Because God's light overcomes darkness. The enemies of the kingdom of God use secretive, deceptive means to oppose the gospel. Evil may even appear to be winning at times. And the church may even seem to be waning. But that is only temporary. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation, his commendation from God. In the end, the truth will be revealed. And if the truth will be revealed in the end, how wise is it for us to proclaim it as loudly and boldly as we can? See, our text mentions that we should proclaim on the housetops. And as one commentator made note, flat rooftops of a Palestinian house provided excellent places for speakers to reach the largest audience. See, in Jesus' day, if someone needed to make an announcement, if they wanted to reach their largest audience, they would get on their housetop and they would yell it. We live in a different day. So imagine if I went home to my neighborhood, got on my roof, and somehow didn't hurt myself already, right? And then started yelling, right? That's not being very neighborly, right? The the firemen would come, the police officers, whoever, they'd say, this guy is crazy, get him off his roof. That's just not how we do things today, right? Don't go stand on your roof. But the key question for this morning is where have you been given a rooftop? No, not a literal rooftop, but who is listening to you and what are you saying to them? That's what Jesus is saying. You need to say it boldly. You need to say it loudly. So who is listening? And then you need to ask, what am I saying to them? There were times where Jesus sternly warned people not to go and say, for his hour had not come, but it's a different time now. He has said, go and proclaim the message. Make disciples. I began feeling called to ministry when I was a freshman in college. And so I was at Missouri State, and then I, through lots of conversations with mentors, with friends, I began thinking, I think this is my trajectory. And, and I uh, was headed that way, and I determined 
that it was wise for me to go to seminary. Now, I wasn't super excited about that because that meant four more years of school, which that's a lot, right? And a lot of money. And so I was like, you know what, let's do it. And so I graduated from Missouri State. I married my wife, Amber. And then three months later, we were, found ourselves in downtown Dallas to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And we were feeling the burn. I mean, it was insane. We, I had started a new job at Prestonwood and I was feeling anxious about that. Our marriage was okay, but we, we only were married for three months and now we don't have any friends. We're in downtown Dallas. I had just sent my first payment to, to DTS and I went, really, it's that much money? Like, that's a lot of money. And I had my first few weeks of classes and I was going, there's that much reading? Like that, in one semester, I'm going to read more books than I have in my entire life. I've never written a paper that's 25 pages. I don't read books that are 25 pages. I'm, I'm feeling the burn at this point, right? And I sat down for my first chapel and the, in, in the, for my first chapel message at DTS. And I still remember this because the president at the time, Dr. Mark Bailey, got up behind and he began teaching behind the pulpit and he began teaching. And as he was teaching, I don't remember his whole message, but I remember this quote and it stuck with me, for, you know, for all these years. And it says this, don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. I mean, I was like, okay. I, I mean, I wrote it down immediately. I'm sitting there and I'm feeling the burn. I'm like, I'm in the dark. I feel like the lights have been turned off on my faith. I mean, I'm doubting everything. Should I just go home? I mean, I have friends there. Surely this isn't God's will for me. I mean, I was hitting suffering. I was hitting pain. And I started to doubt in the dark what God has shown me in the light. Christian, there will be dark days, but we need not fear the dark. Why? Because there is one who broke it. There is one who broke into the darkness. He turned the lights on. And it's not your power, your strength that turns him back on. It's him. His light cannot be put out. He is whispering to each of our hearts and each of our minds this morning the truth of the gospel. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's here. Repent. Don't doubt in the dark what God showed you in the light. So how can we confess Christ when facing the darkness? God's light overcomes darkness. It cannot be put out. Reason number two, God's power over death. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't talk about fear very often, do we? Why? See, the Bible talks a lot about fear. In the Old Testament, there's four Hebrew words that are translated into our English word fear, and they happen over 300 times. In the New Testament, there's four Greek words that are translated into our English word fear, and they happen over 100 times. The Bible talks a lot about fear, but can't you tell with four Hebrew words and four Greek words, they translate only into our one English word fear, we're missing some of the intricacy, the, the detail of what it means, what fear means in Scripture and what it means for a believer. Well, in one sense, we're, we're adverse to admit fear because it's an admission of weakness. 
We only see fear in the negative sense. So we think of things like, I'm afraid of heights. And we're, that fear, it moves us away. It, it causes us to avoid that thing, that object. Whatever you fear, you avoid it, that object of your fear. That's the negative sense of the term. It gives us a sense of dread or terror. However, the Bible speaks of fear also in a positive light, in a positive way. See, in the positive, it denotes a sense of reverence or respect. So you might say, as it often does in Scripture, I fear God. No, no, no. That person is not avoiding God. They're not running away from God. They're in awe of God. They have a respect for God, right? It's how we teach our kids that the stove is hot, right? We want them to fear the stove. No, we want them to use the stove, but we want them to respect it, to use it the right way, right? That's the positive sense of fear. Therefore, there there is a wrong and right way of being afraid. And Jesus says here that there is no need to fear those who can kill only the body because they cannot kill the soul. Our eternal destiny is not in the hands of man. You are not in control of your eternal destiny. That is in the hands of the Father. And Jesus says, no one will get through his hands. Therefore, the present judgment of men does not frighten us because we're living in the light of the future judgment of God. The second reason we can confess Christ is because God alone has power over death. God holds our very life in his hands. And he alone has that power. And so as we fear God, we have no reason to fear man. Warren Wearsby said it like this, the fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. The fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. There is no room for both. See, God's power surpasses what can be done in this life. And Jesus illustrates by saying that God can destroy both soul and body in hell. You might say, but confessing Christ might cost me my job. It might cost me my friends. It might cost me my comfort. It might even cost me my life. It may be, but there, their power ends. It cannot do further. We must remember that as followers of Christ, we will stand before God one day to give an account of our stewardship. Our stewardship of our time, of our treasure, of our very lives. Now for the believer, that will be all bathed in the blood of Christ. Fully forgiven. No shame or guilt, but there will still be stewardship. And Hebrews 10.31 reminds us, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. And God's power overcomes death. So we have no fear of death. Reason number three, God's care dissolves doubt. In verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here we see two illustrations used by Jesus. 
to remind his disciples of God's unique care for them. See, the fall did not just cause us to be sinful, right? It didn't just manipulate our, or, or didn't uh, distort our desires. It distorted our assumptions of God. See, now when we face suffering, we don't just turn internally or turn to our circumstances. We turn to God and we shake our hand and we say, how could you? The fall has broken our relationship with him. See, when we face any form of suffering, our natural selves come out. And we doubt who God is. We doubt that he even cares. We doubt that he even knows. But here we're reminded of God's care for even the most insignificant creatures. There is hardly anything of less value than sparrows. In Luke's account of this same teaching, Luke says, if you go and buy four sparrows, you'll get one free. And it's the equivalence of two pennies, right? In our, in our economy, it'd be two pennies. Now, there, this is something that the poorest of the poor would survive off of to eat, right? This is an insignificant creature. Yet God has his providential eye upon them to protect them so that nothing happens to them by chance. What does our text say there? Not one of them, right? Not one of them what? Will fall to the ground apart from your father. See, God has his providential eye upon them. He knows them. He cares for them. Would he who is careful about the sparrows disregard your life? Would he who clothes the, lily, clothes the lilies of the field disregard your life? He cares for you. He cares. God's care is revealed to us through his care for even the smallest and most insignificant of his creation. His care for us goes beyond just a provision, right? It's not that he just gives what we need. It's that he knows us and he knows what we truly need, what our greatest need is, not just what would satisfy our desires or our hopes, but what would satisfy our soul. He knows. But a knowledge of who we are. See, I had to Google to see if in our ridiculous world, someone had accomplished this dumb feat, right? Of numbering the hairs on your head. I had to Google it because I was like, I don't want to get up there and say it. And then someone's like, hey, I had a YouTuber once, right? So no one has done this, right? And no one should ever do this. What a waste of time to count the hairs on your head. Unless, you know, maybe you've lost most of them, right? Then you've got a head start on us. But if you want to be viral, there's your thing, right? You can just go out, you can count the numbers on your head, and you have that ridiculous, it, it, it doesn't matter, right, information. There's no reason for it. It doesn't matter. So why would it say here that God knows that about us? We see that as just insignificant. It doesn't matter, right? You, you're going to lose hair tomorrow. So even what you did know, you're not going to know anymore. But God knows even the numbers of hair on your head. Here's what it tells us. The Father has complete knowledge of even the most insignificant information in your life. The Father has complete knowledge, everything, about even the most insignificant details about your life. God cares for each of us by knowing every little thing about our little lives. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, 
Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, he doesn't just provide for you, doesn't just send you the good things. He knows you and he cares for you. He knows the most insignificant things about your life. And he cares about them. As doubt stirs up in your soul and you begin to question, does God care? Does God know? Is God going to do anything? Remind yourself that God concerns himself with the littlest details of your life. And that gives us a great confidence that he knows of the greatest events of our life. And he cares. So these three reasons, God's light overcomes darkness, God's power over death, and God's care dissolving doubt, they all lead us to one response. Confess Jesus as Lord. Those three truths move us to one response. Confess Jesus as Lord. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Christians confess Jesus in the face of darkness, death, and doubt. No matter our circumstances, our confession stays the same. Jesus is the Messiah who died for us, who rose on our behalf, and who will return to us. See, there are two ways we see this confession as Jesus as Lord in our daily lives. The first, our confession is seen by our allegiance. I love that word allegiance. I'm going to pledge allegiance to Jesus. He is worthy. He has my first. God looks for this declaration in all of his followers. <clears throat> for what point is there to followers who do not follow him? You must align yourself with him. You must pledge your allegiance to him. You must show your allegiance to him. One commentator said it like this, it's one thing to become convinced that Jesus is an outstanding teacher, even that he is the Messiah, and quite another to profess oneself to be his follower in the face of hostile opposition from people in influential places. <clears throat> the same Greek word for acknowledge in verse 32 is used in Matthew 7 as Jesus warns his followers not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare. That's our word acknowledge there. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me workers of lawlessness. This open declaration is seen, is made in this life, but it's fully realized in the life to come, Revelation 3. And I will never <clears throat> blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess, acknowledge, right, his name before my father and his angels. There will come a moment where everyone stands before the judgment throne of God. 
You must acknowledge Jesus in this life. You must. Romans 10.9 explains how that happens. That if you confess, acknowledge with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The response this morning is to make your confession known by pledging your allegiance to Jesus with your life. Not with just your words, not in just a prayer, but with everything. Where are you not showing allegiance to the Lord? The second way we see our confession of Jesus is our confession is seen in our proclamation. So in verse 27, I want to go back a little bit on our text. It says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. All who have declared their allegiance to God are commanded to then go and do as he has done and say as he has said. See, 2 Corinthians 5 calls followers of Jesus ambassadors who are given the responsibility, the stewardship of the ministry of reconciliation. And our proclamation is of boldness. See, when I was in youth ministry, there was a popular phrase that ran around the Christian circuit. Now, you know this circuit. It was printed on t-shirts. It became slogans in youth groups. It was mentioned in dove-charted songs, and it was engraved on signs at Hobby Lobby. It was everywhere, right? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, teenage Jonathan loved it. I loved that saying. You know why? It's my escape hatch. So you're telling me I can be faithful to evangelism and I don't have to say anything? I'm in, right? I mean, I used this. I memorized it. I had it everywhere, right? Give me the t-shirt. I, I, I wore that proudly. But here's the deal. It's not in the Bible. It's, it's against of what our passage says, right? Proclaim it from the housetops. Go to your largest audience. That's boldness. That's using your words. The problem with the saying is that it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Sounds very different. Necessary, use words. How can you preach without words? That's like saying, catch this ball, and if necessary, use your hands. We understand that, right? Like, walk on the sidewalk, and if necessary, use your legs. That's just, it doesn't make sense. But yet, we take it in because we want an escape hatch. We want to run away because we're, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable when I say I'm a Christian. When I, when I talk about someone, about a Bible verse I read. Or when they're saying, I'm going through a hard time. And we don't just say, oh, that stinks. We say, hey, you know, whenever I'm going through a hard time, my comfort and hope is in Christ. Would you want to know more about that? That's uncomfortable. It's awkward. So we look for sayings in Hobby Lobby instead of looking to what Jesus says in his word. Now, before you swing the pendulum too far, right? When you're like, all right, I'm going on my roof. I'm ready to go. Hang on. It's still important that our words match our life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's, there's a balance, right? There's a balance in that our words must be bold. We must proclaim them from the housetops. And our lives must shine as a light before men. Our good works must shine. So that why? They give glory to the Father. You can't proclaim the good news without words. So if I could go back to teenage Jonathan and just shake him and say, 
dude, get it together. Awkwardness is okay. Everyone feels awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. Just tell them about Jesus. I would. So I missed that opportunity. I lost that opportunity to just steward the gospel. There's people in your life that the Lord has put there for a reason. Don't miss the opportunity. Preach Jesus. Our confession of Jesus must be seen and heard by our allegiance and our proclamation. Christian, there is no greater way to spend your life than in labor for the kingdom of God. There's no greater time spent than in serving him in everything you do, proclaiming the message of the gospel. Everything we do in this life is a shout in the wind. But when we invest our life in the kingdom of God, we receive purpose, we receive mission, we receive life. And that is the only place we are promised to find it. Don't waste your life. Look to Jesus. Look to his life and how it was lived. Look to his death and recognize that all of your failures have already been paid for. And look at his resurrection and rest in his strength, in his hope that even when the church seems to wane and evil seems to be breaking through, when the darkness feels like it's been, when the darkness of your faith comes so overwhelming that it's like walking into a room where you just came from outside and it's a dark room and you are just unaware. You can't see anything. If you're in that moment, recognize that he is strong. He has promised to return. The victory is his. It's not on your back. Take that burden off. Give it to the Lord and look up to him and say, I'll follow you. Hebrews 10 ends it well. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Even if you are lacking faith this morning, hold fast to the confession because he is faithful. Let me pray.